This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I am Krishna Kumar, Director of RAND Labor and Population. Our mission is to improve socioeconomic well-being around the world through research and analysis. I'm pleased to introduce tonight's speakers on the subject of workforce development as part of our quarterly policy forums programs. Robert Bozik is the Associate Director of Rand Labor and Population. He's the co-author of a recent article in The Hill titled, Getting Technical, Preparing High School Students for the Workforce America Needs. Vaughn Tan Quinlivan is the Vice Chancellor for Workforce and Economic Development for the California Community Colleges. David York is the Director of Talent Acquisition Operations, Aerospace Systems at Northrop Grumman Corporation. Ben Bergman is our moderator and a senior reporter on the Southern California economy at KPCC. We look forward to the conversation. Let's listen now. Thank you very much. And thank you all of you for coming out on this pre-Labor uh, Day Thursday to talk about a topic, very applicable to Labor Day. Not sure if that was intentional or not, but it works out well. And Robert, let's start with you. The topic tonight is workforce development for the jobs of the future. So we're talking uh, tonight about a, a skills gap uh, which exists. So if I want you to set out the problem. How big of an issue is this in workplace development, and why should we care about it? Uh, so uh, first off, thank you for coming here to RANT and uh, being our moderator for this panel. Uh, and thank you all for, for coming. Um, the key topic that drives our interest, I think, as an organization in workforce development is trying to make sure that we have an economy that is uh, fueled by workers that have the skills for the jobs that are needed. And a big area of concern right now is that we have uh, an economy that has approximately uh, 54% of jobs that require somewhere between a high school diploma and a college degree, and we have about 44% of the population that has that education level. And so a big part of how we are thinking about workforce development right now is how we bridge that divide uh, between that 54 and that 44%. Uh, we refer to this often as the middle skills gap. So while there's a lot of attention, as many of you know, about uh, getting individuals into college and getting college degrees, uh, a big chunk of jobs in this country actually require uh, an occupational license, a certificate, an associate's degree, somewhere, again, between a high school diploma and a college degree. And we are lacking the number of individuals to actually fill those jobs. And so we're trying to figure out from a broader policy perspective how we can uh, provide education and training opportunities at that middle skill level to help uh, shore up that 54 to 44% discrepancy. And what would be some examples of jobs in that middle skills range? Right. So the, the, the biggest middle skill jobs where there are demand currently are in the area of information technology, healthcare and um, information technology, healthcare, and advanced manufacturing. So those are the, the big areas right now. And uh, more regionally speaking, uh, with respect to Los Angeles, uh, we have a, a need for trade logistics jobs as well. When did this problem start? Or has this always been an issue? Uh, this has been a, a, a problem that has existed uh, at the start of the turn of the century that was highly exacerbated by the Great Recession. 
uh, as well as the um, increase in automation and technological change where jobs are increasingly requiring um, automation and technology to take advantage of the different mechanisms that need to be filled. And so there's been this growth in jobs that require this specific skill set that didn't exist 10 or 15 <coughs> years ago. And we were talking about how there is a bit of a conflict here mm -hmm. because th there, there is an, a, somewhat of an um, inherent conflict between uh, skills training versus educational common core standards. What That's should right. we be teaching students? We have a lim limited amount of time, a limited amount of classes, so in, in some ways they compete for each other. That's right. So this has been uh, a difficult challenge in part because of the structure of the American school system. So uh, historically, I'm sure many, pe and many people in the room are familiar with the phrase vocational education. So if you think back to education, and the si vocational education, the connotation in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you're often thinking about home economics courses or shop classes. Uh, these were the types of courses that were tend to be thought of as a, an academic dumping ground for kids who are not going on to college, okay? Um, this changed quite dramatically in the late 90s and early 2000s with a rebranding of vocational education to what we call career and technical education. Um, for better or for worse, one of the major changes in uh, the American school system was the increasing uh, reliance on standardized test scores to evaluate schools, schools districts, teachers, etc. Um, as we've put more emphasis on standardized testing, we've seen a narrowing of the curriculum, which has forced uh, every element of the American schools to be evaluated by the extent to which they improve test scores. The spillover effect for career and technical education, or as it was called vocational education before, was that these courses essentially had to justify their existence in American schools. They essentially had to uh, highlight the elements of the academic curriculum they were being held to the same standards as academic courses. So we saw this change from a vocational uh, style training in this country uh, and a shift more towards this career and technical education that really highlights um, quantitative skills, logic, reasoning, uh, technology, communication, et cetera. Uh, to tie it back to your question about the tension, uh, at the end of the day, uh, schools are still very uh, focused on uh, getting their students to go on to college to four-year degrees. Schools are still held to the standard of trying to have high standardized test scores. Uh, and for better or for worse, uh, most of our teachers are still taught in, a are taught in traditional schools of education. And so it has become difficult for them to keep pace from an educational perspective, with the rapid change in technology and the rapid skill demand, it's become hard for them to develop curricula that are really responding to these quick changes, implement them to teach teachers how to teach these courses, and then essentially try to shove it into what's already a, a relatively crammed schedule and crammed set of expectations for teachers to, to meet. Well, we're going to come back to that. I know, Vaughn, you have a lot of thoughts on that. So hold on to them. Don't forget them. So that's your teaser. But we're going to go over to uh, David York, who is our representative from uh, business and from the employer perspective. Uh, David uh, is in human resources at a little company called Northrop Grumman. And uh, David, how hard is it to find employees for the right positions at Northrop Grumman? It's becoming increasingly difficult. We... Um, Particularly now, you know, if you look at the aerospace sector, right, we were in kind of this flat to declining space for a long time, up until very recently, and we have won 
the largest contract actually that the government has ever has ever handed out. It's a $55 billion contract that's probably going to go north of that quite a bit. Um, we've won a lot of other things as well, and so that has dramatically increased our need for talent. And and that talent is is everything from you know your typical college degree engineer you know person in finance you know you name that all the way to what we call uh, touch labor and these are people that are that are skilled within you know aerospace as it relates to fabrication machining that sort of thing you know people that are literally touching the, the, the plane or whatever it is that they're building. And so, um, and I, I was listening to what you were saying about that, and that is something that, you know, is very near and dear to us because we have the extra rub that not only do we need to find these people that have these skill sets, but we also need to get them security clearances to work on a lot of the programs that we work on. Okay, and so that that creates a different rub uh, for us to to actually even deal with. And so, you know, we've gone out and tried to do different things as it relates to uh, education. So, for example, at Antelope Valley uh, Community College, we have helped create a curriculum with them. That's a to, I believe it's a ten week curriculum that puts people through that gets them the skill that they need so that they can hopefully get hired on. Uh, into one of our, our touch labor forces, and a lot of that happens to be in Palmdale, thus the connection to Antelope Valley. So those are some of the things that, that's, uh, that we contend with. But it's just there's, there's, a huge, there's a huge gap, and if you start to even talk about the, the college graduates, there are, you know, there are not enough engineers. There are not enough people in computer science um, to fill the needs that, that we have. And what are some examples of jobs that have especially acute shortages of qualified applicants? Well, the ones I just mentioned, but I would say probably the one that's most dramatic is computer science. Um, you know, because we we have a lot of software programming and things that we need to do, and that's that's what a lot of these computer science students are able to do. Um, so you you couple that with the fact that, and I've heard different stats, but something on, along the the order of there are approximately every year fifty thousand more you know openings for a computer science student than there are students to fill those jobs, right? So that's obviously very near and dear to us and Amazon and Facebook and all these, you know, and, and that also has increased the competition for these students that we have. Um, so no longer, you know, is it, you know, Northrop Grumman is a destination maybe for somebody that wants to do that. These, these students have enormous options. And so there's a shortage and in, in incredible competition. So I would, if I had to pick one, I would say computer science is probably the, the, the hardest for us. And your company obviously has, uh, a presence in many different states. Would mm -hmm. you say uh, this is a more difficult issue in in California to because uh, you not only have to attract the right skilled of workers, but mm -hmm. you also have to convince them to come live in what is an expensive place. Right. Yeah. You know what? I would say it's yes and no. The the one thing about California that's that's good is that yes, it's an expensive place, but we also have a wealth of schools. You know, some, you know, even right here in our backyard, you, you know, you, you name the, you know, UCLA, USC, all the Cal State system, you know, up and down, you know, Stanford, Cal, whatever, you know. So we, so we do have a lot of, of supply, if you will, within the state, um, but it's just, but it's still not enough. Um, so I don't know that location necessarily is as much of a factor as just the pure shortage that we face. Well, Vaughn, I want to bring in you because you are the person on this issue. We are lucky enough to have her in California. Um, you think about this issue probably more than anyone in the state. So very happy you're with us here tonight. <laughs> and um, I want to return to um, what Robert said a minute ago about how you know there is this tension between academic skills versus vocational ones. How do you see that issue? Sure. 
So I look at this audience. My guess is that there's probably an average of two or 2.5 degrees per person. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, so I was trained exactly the same way, right? So I'm a product of Georgetown University and then, and then Stanford Graduate School. So I carried all the same biases that you have, especially with regards to these middle skills jobs that were alluded to. But then I went to my company, and which was my, my last life, and we were struggling to hire a whole set of what, what are uh, called these technicians that are middle skilled. So for example, in the middle of the night, you're asleep. It's thundering. The power line falls down. Who do you call to come out and fix it? Right? Who trains those people? They're called um, electrical uh, uh, and power line uh, workers, so line workers. So they are trained through a certain method, and it's not through the four-year system. Uh, so interesting, that sort of opened up my worldview, and we began to develop all these different ch uh, ways to attract uh, in uh, individuals into our, our workforce. And we did this, um, these focus groups with students, and, and that, that time, that, that group of students was um, high school students. So, so I came in with all my, bi my unconscious biases. Mm -hmm. And when we talked about the nature of these jobs, and if you imagine, like if you had an accident, the first responder is trained through the community colleges. That's a middle skill job. The person who checks you in at the hospital the surgical, you know, all the surgical tech, the radiology tech, the sonographer, those are all middle school jobs. They're not trained through the, a, a four-year degree, but actually um, more than a high school and less than a baccalaureate. Um, so as I talked to, uh, I heard the students talk, they actually said that, well, let, let me roll it back a little bit. So the way you and I were trained, we were very successful sitting within the four walls of our room studying. Then we went to college and sat within the four walls of the library studying. And then we went to the four walls of graduate school and studied. And then I got my four walls of my cubicle and now four <laughs> walls of my office and now the bigger <laughs> office, right? And so that's my view of success. And these students, what they said was, I can't the idea of four walls. And if you made me go through more education so that I can graduate and sit within four walls, you, I am trapped. And so that moment, I mean, just listening to them talk, I realized I carried my own biases in terms of how, you know, what I was, the environment I was successful, and that there are others that prefer different occupations. Um, so we actually changed the way that we marketed these uh, occupations. We started showing pictures of people climbing the poles, right? They were dropping down from helicopters, uh, fixing uh, power line systems. Um, they were, you know, <coughs> geared up in order to weld tunnels in the middle of the rain. Uh, we showed desks being thrown out the windows. Uh, and so well, I think what I'm explaining uh, is, is that we all, all trained a certain way, and we were also trained in a certain sequence, which was, was that we did the, uh, the liberal arts, we did the two-year general education, and then we began to specialize, right? For other people, they may need to specialize first and then at a later point come back for general education. And it's just not one way for everybody. 
And so that's, that's where we are in terms of uh, our population. They need different ways to get to the, the level of skills that are needed. And, and w you look a lot at specific occupations in California. What occupations do you see that are most underutilized, if you will, by students at your schools that they could go get some skills and then make a relatively high wage? Oh, thank you for asking me because <laughs> I will brag. <laughs> I will acknowledge that if you can go into the computer science and data analytics, you're going to start at 95,000 in Silicon Valley, freshly graduated. So if you can transition careers, uh, that's all very good. So let me just share some of the middle skill um, salaries. Then this is actually the actual earnings of our graduates. We compared it two years before they uh, completed their program and then two years and five years. So this is on average. So um, cardiovascular technicians is 73,000. Diagnostic medical sonographers, 81,000. Uh, aeronautical aviation techs, 76,000. Waste and wastewater techs, 86,000. And my favorite, electrical and power line transmissions. The people <laughs> that are fixing your power, the down power lines, 137,000. Wow. That's not bad ROI, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. So you thank you. Yeah. Can I follow up on that point? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, to follow up on that point about the, the sequencing, uh, mm -hmm. one of the big changes with vocational education, this shift towards career and technical education, has been to, one, define what the high-growth occupations are, uh, communicate what those occupations are to local school districts, and then work with them collaboratively to create a pathway. This was the big piece that was missing before. So you have kids who are thinking, I don't want to sit in these four walls, but then they don't have a clear op option set in front of them to think, well, how do I get from this point to this point? So a big movement as part of current technical, technical education was to create very structured sequences of courses so that if you want to land in one of those jobs four or five years down the road or even two, three years down the road, you've got a, a curriculum in place that you could start as early as ninth or 10th, 11th, 12th grade to sort of set you on that pathway there so that you're not just taking courses for courses' sake, to just get a high school diploma, to then what next? You've got a very clear pathway. And so that's been a big movement as part of career and technical education. Yeah, it, it sounds like too many people are just going and spending $150,000 getting a liberal arts education, and then Absolutely. they don't know what they're uh, doing it for. Absolutely. So is this more, is this a problem better solved by employers or by the educational system? And let me ask each one of you that okay. to talk about briefly. Uh, well, I'll take an easy answer first and say it's a little bit of both. But I do think leadership needs to come from businesses. At the end of the day, schools are held to so many different standards from local school districts to the state to the federal level. Um, schools are grappling with teacher shortages and resource allocation issues across the board. And so for them to have to respond uh, to the needs of the labor market without any backing or support becomes very difficult. 
Uh, on top of which, schools are not in the best position to be able to articulate uh, skills in the labor market, right? So this really comes from business. And so we see some of the most successful examples of career and technical education and workforce development programs when you have businesses collaborating with one another and talking to one another and saying, oh, we need workers that have skill X or skill Y, how do we get our schools involved to make sure that they're teaching students skill X and skill Y so that it prepares their students on, this again, the sort of more um, hierarchical, sequential career pathway? So I definitely, it's definitely both. Um, at the end of the day, though, businesses are the ultimate recipients of the products that schools send out, right? Those are their employees. And so uh, employers really need to take initiative here and see the resource base in their local school, school districts as potential solutions here. And Vaughn, let me ask you about that. And also, you know, how do you make sure that you are teaching the right skills that businesses at that moment want? Because they probably change rather quickly. So it's, it's good that students study what they like. But if you plan to go into the workforce, it's important to study what employers want as well. Um, and you'll find that education and higher education are really bad mind readers. Uh, I have an advisory board, and um, this is further complicated by the, the change, the cycle of change in technology. So uh, there's this fellow who heads up a major fleet, a fleet of all types of vehicles. And he said, you know, it used to be when I was younger, the, we would have a breakthrough change in these vehicles maybe once in every 25 years. But now... What's happening is that we went from, you know, the regular combustion engines, then we went to electric vehicle and hybrid vehicle, and now we're in fuel cells. So if you're studying electric vehicle, that's 10-year-old technology. And it's not even first-generation fuel cell. It's second-generation, third-generation, and it's happening every two or three years. So if you're expecting education to guess the skill set, the education will get it wrong. So it's important that that we are co-investing at the same time because that's having that uh, um, dialogue can help with the alignment and help us iterate curriculum to keep up with the, the, what the labor market needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I mean, I would, I would echo that. I think, though, that I would probably even lean more on, on the businesses for sure. Um, you know, to your point, technology changes quickly and, what, and whatnot, but but also in, in what I was saying before, too, about the shortages, right? So you look at, even if you look at the pool that exists today, there's, it, not only is it short just in number, but it's also short from a diversity standpoint. You know, a lot of the people that, that, that we want to hire within engineering and, and whatnot, there is a dramatic shortage of, of women and minorities. And so, you know, we take it very seriously and that, one, we, we want to increase the interest overall, but also within the right communities. And so that goes right to the education side of things. And so it's getting involved with high schools, um, you know, in, in underserved areas. We uh, work with the California, uh, or I'm sorry, Charles Drew University on the, the it's, I think it's the uh, uh, Science Saturday uh, Academy to try to, you know, help students get more interested in, you know, the STEM majors. Um, as I mentioned before, it's working with something like, uh, you know, Antelope Valley Community College to, you know, to have a, the right curriculum so that we can take, you know, this, this, these students. And I think we graduate about 80 students a month right now out of that um, to help, you know, align them with, with our needs as well. And so I, I really do think it's incumbent upon the businesses to get, get very involved with their communities as well as with the, edu the educators and uh, be able to deliver 
on uh, you know what you know certainly what what we need, but also just you know increasing the community involvement, which is kind of that you know rising tide lifts all boats scenario as well, and uh, increasing diversity, which is also business imperative. And so we have to look at it, I think, from all those angles, and, and we and we really do try to. We're going to go to audience questions in just a few minutes, so uh, start thinking of uh, some of your questions. But I wanted to um, ask uh, a question, uh, and I'll start with you, Vaughn, that uh, occurs to me as I look out at our audience, and that is that we've been talking a lot about younger people and Mm. uh, college-age people, but there's also uh, a lot of baby boomers now who are looking for second careers. And so how do we address that issue of... Uh, people who are more in the baby boom range learning uh, new skills that they could find useful and employers would find useful. So there's another phenomenon, and it's thanks to the technology, and it's it's creating these distributed environments for work, right? So um, so uh, I looked it up. Uh, so UpSpace, for example, UpSpace is the largest online micro-work platform. So taking very skilled people or maybe pseudo-skilled people and and doing job matching in a way that we physically had to find each other previously in terms of you and, and, and the job. So just like Match.com has been able to make the, 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 the dating uh, environment much more uh, efficient, you're, you're beginning to see all these technology platforms that are, are matching people with different jobs. And again, it's not one thing for everyone, right? So um, uh, the other aspect is if, if you don't want to have an employer, uh, we would also highly encourage you creating businesses, which has always been the American tradition. So, you know, we're, we're having conversations with Apple Retail um, and looking at the, the, all the phenomenons of the, the point-of-sale technologies that are available to you these days if you want to, to start a business. There are um, a set of uh, another phenomenon called pop-up stores, Right. Isn't that amazing? You can just pop up something, you know, in the community or nearby or at some event, uh, if, if you need to. Um, so there's a, there's a whole world of possibilities now that are new, and maybe one of the things uh, you have right here, an emeritus college, thanks to Santa, Mo- Santa Monica, and I wonder if there are uh, specific workshops that can be d- uh, um, directed at helping people connect with those those movements. And um, we also, we haven't talked at all about apprenticeships, but this is also a a big issue. This is something that President Obama just announced that he wanted to increase federal funding for by about $200 million. Um, Robert, uh, I mean, how does this fit into that? Are are companies offering enough apprenticeships? Probably not. So apprenticeships, uh, we know, are effective in the sense that individuals who undertake apprenticeship programs have more stable careers and have higher earnings, uh, and we know that there is a high return on investment for employers. Uh, What we do know about apprenticeships is that they are very burdensome on employers to implement. Um, You typically see apprenticeship programs in labor markets where you've got a very specific skill that is needed by one or a small handful of companies. So I'll give you a really poor example, but I think one that illustrates it. If you're the only coffee shop in town, you've got to train your baristas on how to make espresso drinks, right? If there are 50 or 100 coffee shops in town, you may not put that much investment because you could poach a barista from another coffee shop, or if there's so many coffee shops, 
maybe there might be a local training system that'll pop up, right? So you tend to see apprenticeships in, again, in firms where there's little competition for a very specific skill. The problem with that has been because these apprenticeships are isolated, it's been very difficult to bring them up to scale. So President Obama's initiative, the American uh, Apprenticeship Initiative, is aimed at uh, trying to really reinvigorate uh, apprenticeships in the United States. And so right now they're trying to get a sense of how can you take this very individualized training that's very important for, as you can imagine, a lot of jobs have very specific skills that can't be taught in a community college, that could only be learned in the um, employer's inside the employer's firm, how you take that up to scale and do it in a meaningful way, and then also attract the right individuals to, to take advantage of those opportunities. Well, I want to uh, open it up to audience questions since you all have at least two degrees. So <laughs> we have uh, this uh, gentleman who is going to go around and uh, bring the microphone to you, so uh, wait until he com you can just... Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Uh, so we do welcome your questions, uh, and I'll just reiterate that uh, we ask you to raise your hands, and either myself or my colleague will come around and come to you. Um, and we just do have a request. Uh, we do have a lot of people who want to ask questions, so uh, we ask that you kindly think of others and just ask one question at a time. And if there's enough time at the end, we'll come back around. All right, so I'm going to start right here. We've got right, some right here in front of me. I only have 1.5 degrees, so <laughs> I don't know whether I dare. <clears throat> and I had five notes, but now I'm too intimidated. So let me say that I think at the heart of this is a political solution is required. <clears throat> um, if you have the problem of a president and a Congress that don't work together, and if you have the problem of state curricula and local curricula, which, as you know, depending on the part of the country, can be greatly lacking in critical thinking studies and dominated by religious infusions. I am afraid to get into a situation like France where every student in every school is on the same page every way. It has its ups, but it has its downs. So... Uh, summing up, how much of a political problem is this? Vaughn, do you want to take that one, especially in, in California? Well, we, fortunately, in California, we found it very bipartisan. So in this moment in time, there's uh, actually complete alignment between uh, the governor's agenda, the, the both parties, and the Senate and the Assembly when it comes to workforce. And everybody wants to figure out how to make all the different pots of money work together using the same metrics for workforce so that we can move students. Uh, I mean, people will care about it from different angles. So, you know, the business will care about it from getting the right talent, uh, and, and, other, and others will care about it from a social mobility. But at the moment in time, we have a, a good set of coherence with, within California. We have a question here. Well, thank you so much for your very, very interesting uh, dialogue here. You know, what prompts my question is that very often when you're talking about uh, the political parties, they say uh, they divide up the people who are uh, college 
degrees have college degrees and they vote this way, and people without college degrees, and, you know, blue-collar people are vote this way. And, you know, when I went to school a few years ago, <laughs> um, people that were, were training for something other than a four-year college degree were uh, highly regarded. And in fact, they made a fair income, and people thought they were a, you know, a good part of our society. But now it seems that these people are forced into the idea that if they don't have a four-year college degree, that there's something wrong with them. And I wonder how this attitude has uh, evolved and whether or not that's uh, rational. And maybe third question is, what do we do about it? You want to take that one? (laughs) I heard two questions. Okay. Well, I I can comment on the the issue of... um, What we've seen in the past 20 years, and this aligns with the story I was telling about this evolution from vocational education to career and technical education, is we've had this um, unparalleled push in this country to get everybody to go to college, everybody, regardless of, of, of where you're from, what you want to be, regardless of your grades even, everyone has to go to college. And so what has occurred alongside, again, this explosion in current technical education is you've got a large cohort of kids entering college that, one, don't know what they want to do, and two, ultimately are going to take on jobs that don't require a college degree. So they spend one or two years fumbling around, taking courses, accumulating debt, uh, prolonging their transition into the labor force, and actually putting a quite a large burden on taxpayers and other societal resources. And so this, this change from vocational to career and technical education has been in part a response to try to show individuals that this pathway, into co- you don't have to go to college to be successful. In fact, for many folks, that's, that's going to be a waste of time. But we're still facing this mounting pressure and this internalized pressure in high schools where, the, where teachers are cramming college down kids' throats, where they're, you know, again, sort of held to this uh, standardized test score mentality about high achievement of how you integrate this idea of occupational training in a different route that is as admirable, um, in many cases, as, um, as shown by the um, examples that Vaughn gave, uh, high, relatively high-paying jobs. This is something that we're still battling culturally, and you, you see it differently across schools. And so some school districts are very... Um, open to career and technical education, have a strong culture that supports uh, non-baccalaureate pathways, but it's, it's still a struggle and it's, it's a relatively uneven one. But we're in a time of, of change, and so I hope the, uh, ty- the types of questions you're asking right now are not the types of questions we're going to be asking 10, 15 years from now. But, but I do wonder, Robert, because you had Bernie Sanders, you know, a big theme of his campaign was free tuition mm-hmm. for everyone, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. this is something that Hillary Clinton also... Absol- Adopted. So. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think we have to reconceptualize the idea of what <laughs> college is, right? So these middle school jobs we're talking about do require post-secondary training, but they don't require four-year degrees. And so uh, free, free tuition, et cetera, the idea there I know from what little I know about the, the specifics of that policy would apply to these types of training programs as well. So we've got a question here to your right, back here. So I, originally, I kind of started this out for Robert, but really kind of to all of you. Um, so I'm going to ask the question, and I'm going to ultimately give a real-life example that we're doing for Los Angeles County Sheriff Jim McDonald to help find qualified personnel. 
So my day job is I own rental property, primarily in South LA, but this works across the board. As a rental property owner, um, I know that on a daily basis, whether my residents, I know who's in, for example, for Sheriff McDonald, he needs to be hired, hiring from the underserved community. So I know where those residents are <clears throat> that uh, have the good credit, as he brought up. I know who is in the, you know, a security office that wants to move up in their career. So it's very targeted. I mean, I know, you know, uh, you know who those individuals are that are in the TSA, they want to move up, and so forth. But as a rental property owner on a daily basis, and this is across the city, not just in the underserved communities, you know, and I would suggest to all of you, think about this. We are the ultimate best conduit, the continuity, to create that resource. In other words, we know who's doing what, and for us, it's good business. And I have hundreds of owners. We're working together collectively to make sure our tenants know where the resources are. Mm -hmm. But it's just good business. It's an opportunity that I think we're significantly missing out on. Mm -hmm. So just make this part of your processes, mm -hmm. you know, as you do this. Did you have a... Uh, okay. Well, yeah, why did you think about it, really? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I could comment and um, I'll punt a little bit to, to Vaughn because we were actually talking about this this morning. You know, part of the workforce development system is that it's a relatively fractured one, right? So I, we've talked a lot about career and technical education, and that is in, in large part about students in the K through 12 system. But the whole other side of workforce development are individuals who are out of school. And so if you have individuals who are in um, – the justice system or individuals who are um, on welfare. I'm using those as two examples of other uh, systems within the state that um, involve workforce development, but they don't necessarily touch one another. Uh, it is complicated to get services and skills uh, that you need because you ha often have to be turned to another organization or another agency, and that's what complicates workforce development. And so this idea of fragmentation and how you build the connections based upon who knows what skills you need is really difficult. You know, it's a little easier to conceive of when you're thinking of high schools and, and a, s a relatively stable youth population, but when you have a broader adult state population that's spread across different institutions where you have various needs, it becomes very difficult. And so, you know, we're always thinking about how do you glue those pieces together uh, more strongly. We have a question here. Good evening. My name is Joy Masha. I'm a field deputy for Senator Holly Mitchell in the 30th Senate District. I am a product of the culture, go to college. <laughs> and I have two degrees. I went straight into my four year and went into my master's program. I'm in a job where I don't need my degree. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm you know, seriously thinking about the next generation. But you, David, you talked about security clearance. Thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. So we're working with a population where they're going back to school, so re-entry, they're going back to school or are sex tra trafficking victims. And they've gotten their education. Then it gets down to the security clearance. Mm -hmm. Cannot pass. So I'm just wondering what types of processes have you all put in place to maybe support this population? If there isn't any, what could be done? Ooh, that's a great question. I would say that as it relates to security clearances, you know, that's something that you know, our customers – are you know the Air Force, the Navy, those kinds of things, and so a lot of a lot of what we have to do as it relates to security clearance is even out of our hands, right? So, um, but we also do we do have a lot of opportunities that don't require clearances as well. Um, so, you know, for example, I, I can tell you that you know we are we are I believe the largest manufacturer in California, and, and people typically don't think of that necessarily, but. But we are, and even if, you, if you're driving down Aviation Boulevard in El Segundo, there's a giant building there. That's where we build uh, pretty much the back two-thirds of F-18 fighter jets. 
and that takes and you, you never know it just driving by right it's just a big building um but you know that takes a huge workforce to help with uh building those, 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 those planes. And so, you know, it's, it's not all about secure, you know, a, a DOD security, but back to, I think what you were saying is that it, it requires a level of post-secondary education, um, and skill to, to, uh, to get there. Uh, so I, I feel compelled. I must tell you my fish story from, from my, uh, workforce development days on the private sector. So we, we put in place these work, the workforce development program, and there was a an individual we were very interested in, right? So we put him through the training and now went through the pre-employment testing, but his name did not come out on the back end. So because we were in this partnership, we actually made the inquiry and said, what happened to, what happened to him? And what happened was that he was very successful. We really liked him from a fit, but when he was 15, he went fishing and he caught a fish that was too small. And he got a ticket. And he never paid the ticket. And the ticket compounded to become a nonviolent felony. <laughs> he did not know that he had a felony on his record. And no employer, because of liability, would ever tell him. They would always be rejected from the entire industry, right? So how did he actually get hired by us? We talked about some of the other partners that need to come. Because we can train, community colleges or any institution can train him, but we actually need a second system, either a, a community-based organization or a local workforce investment board. The case manager there actually took him to court, scrubbed that, and then we were able to hire. So that is the complication of the lives people lead not right now, and actually we need multiple systems to come together so that the employer can actually catch someone on the backside. Right. All right. Uh, we've got a question here. Thank you for your comments. As I listen to your all comments together, you're talking about a system to bring about change, led by business with the help of education, I assume local government mm -hmm. and other governments, basically. In Southern California today, is there, are there one or two examples of such programs actually at work? And where are they? So the good news, uh, Robert has uh, mentioned um, the work around pathways, and there's another phenomenon that we, public policy we've been pushing towards, which is action is at the regional level rather than at the state level. And so um, the governor just signed $200 million in a strong workforce program, and part of that is bringing together the colleges within a region because no one college can do every program. These are expensive programs, right? So together, the 18 community colleges of LA may be able to serve more students to get into the healthcare field. And so the monies are coming out for the colleges to have a conversation with each other to coordinate shared courses, but also who has what specialties so that we can get specialized workers. And it also invites all of the employers and the chambers and the economic development entity to weigh in into those investments to make sure that those uh, programs being put in place are in demand by the labor market. So it's, you're, you'll be seeing that uh, rolled out uh, as of this fall. Right. And I can, even, I, I can add, actually, too, just from a success story standpoint, 
um, one of the things I mentioned earlier is this uh, high school involvement program that we do. And so it is, it's about going back into high schools and, you know, helping students understand the value of a STEM degree, you know, down the road and, and these types of things. And, and uh, there's a, a student that I actually am very aware of who we just made an offer to for a full-time engineering position. But it started out, he's, he's actually, um, he's Hispanic, went to Redondo Union High School and became a high school uh, intern with us, went through that entire program, um, went on to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, got his degree, it did, it did, it did an internship with us every single summer between the grades, and now he's coming on to be a, uh, a full-time engineer. So, you know, so, so the outreach, you know, absolutely works. We have a question here. Hi. Um, I'm Annie. I actually don't have a degree, so I'm probably the only one in this room. I'm a student of life, and I started a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, two things. One is um, I do believe that it's the economic policies of the United States that really sets the trends for what the workforce is today. But I feel very strongly that that's something that we have to change, and that the new pathway has to be sustainability. I mean, because we need to prepare the future of our generations for what's happening today. So to me, I feel that the workforce development and the obligation of colleges and the businesses and everything, we have to be very clear as citizens here. We want the, you know, the support systems in place to ensure that these skills that are needed for the coming years, you know, in our future generations, are going to be there, and that's sustainability because there's nothing else. Thank you. So I just want to remind everyone, uh, we've got a lot of people who have questions, and just would really, really appreciate if you can try to keep it to one question and keep it as succinct as possible, and um, we'll try to get to as many people here as we can. Thank you. I think you people have done a wonderful job. Um, can you hear me okay? All right. Yes. I've been watching this election, and I feel as though a tidal wave is coming over the whole world, but especially this country, Western Europe, Asia as well. And that tidal wave is that the technology and communication is changing so rapidly that even what we're talking about tonight and all these great efforts that you have started and are working very diligently on are not going to be enough because they're in the campaign. We have both Hillary and Trump saying, we're going to bring your jobs back. Well, who are they kidding? They're not bringing our jobs back. There's going to be robotics seizing them, 3D printing seizing them, and all kinds of other things that I can't even enumerate here tonight. And yet... We have to find a way for people to be able to work. The economy needs it, their livelihood needs it, and everything else. What are you doing in a place like Rand and in your fields to address this humongous tidal wave of future employment, living, and everything that goes along with it? Glad you said Ram. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we could do a whole, no, I mean, it's, it's a very good question. Um, we could do a whole panel on it. So, so in 20 seconds. In 20 seconds. Um, so I'll take one of the key points that you brought up, the point about technology here. So there are two elements to technology 
Um, one that I'm actually less worried about and one that I'm more worried about. So the, one, the part of technology I'm less worried about is sort of the idea of technology as a medium. So uh, we, I feel like every two weeks there's, there's articles in the newspaper about how, what, what are the jobs of the future going to look like? How is technology changing the world? I'm actually not that worried in the sense that some of the biggest changes have happened already with the Internet. So we've actually weathered, I think, probably the biggest change in the workforce that's happened, right? So technology is the medium by which we communicate. Uh, you know, technology is taught in math. It's taught in science. It's taught in reading, et cetera. And for you know, most of us who are over the age of 35, we've seen two worlds, right? The pre-Internet world and the post-Internet world. And... That's changing vastly. Everyone under the age of 35 has lived in an internet-only world. So I feel pretty good about the positioning of the next generation's use of technology. Where I'm very concerned about, and this has come up throughout the parts of the conversation, is that the, one of the highest um, demand area is in computer science and having very specialized computer skills. So it's the difference between using technology as a medium and having technology as a very specific career pathway, and that is an area where we are hurting and we don't have very quick and fast solutions. Um, one thing that I'll just throw out there as sort of a point for folks to think about, um, workforce development is uneven in this country in part because labor markets look different, and so we don't want to enforce national curricula from a workforce development perspective because the needs of different labor markets are so vastly different. Uh, and workforce development is in part driven by the employers that are in particular regions. So if you've got um, you know, a region that's rich in uh, natural gas, you're going to have workforce de development programs springing around that, um, that, that uh, economic ecosystem. Uh, in terms of technology and the cutting edge of technology, technology is really clustered in four cities in this country, San Jose, Austin, Seattle, and San Francisco. So all the benefits that come with being in an environmental ecosystem that filters out into training workers is very geographically segregated in this country. And it's something we don't think about in terms of how we get resource allocation more evenly spread to make sure that it's not just in these four cities uh, where there's innovation happening and that training is trickling down. Uh, this is a real problem, and I will say we don't have a solution yet here at RAND. Uh, in fact, part of the uh, impetus behind this particular discussion is we are very interested in inserting ourselves as an organization into this broader workforce development discussion because we feel we have a lot to contribute um, in terms of trying to identify best practices, uh, best um, uh, best solutions, and so we've been starting to have conversations with, with partners like Northrop Grumman and with folks in the state to see where are the biggest needs and where we can leverage RAND's resources to address some of these problems. Thank you. You're welcome. We have a question here. There's been a lot of discussion about jobs as opposed to careers and a lot of focus on entry-level jobs mm -hmm. and preparation for entry-level jobs. Um, my concern is, uh, I guess it's illustrated by that example, being trained as a electric car technician, but guess what? In five years, everyone's going to be driving fuel cell cars. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the concern is, especially when there's a lot of technological innovation, I mean, not everybody can be a, a power lineman, um, so these jobs could become obsolete very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then there is going to be a burden of retooling these people, who should that fall on? Should that be a burden that falls more on industry? Should the, uh, the shareholders give up a little bit of value for the workers? Or is this something that should go back to the state? Or 
I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts. A, is this a valid concern? And B, if it is a valid concern, you know, who should go in and bear the burden here? Uh, I think it, well, one, I think it's a very valid concern. Uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, in outside of Pittsburgh, and in the 70s when the steel mill collapsed, you saw an entire generation of people that were trained to do one thing and one thing only, and they had no other opportunity uh, in terms of uh, taking that skill and applying it to another job. And so this was clearly before the time when community colleges were everywhere to act as a scaffolding. And so I think this is something that we are very mindful of. That was a painful lesson that we learned back then. Um, one way in which uh, we are preparing ourselves, and, and Vaughn might be able to comment a little bit more from the co community college perspective, um, we are in the process as a sort of a, a broader system of higher education developing what are called stackable credentials. And so for folks who don't know what stackable credentials are, um, it, the idea is that if you graduate from high school and you get an occupational license, you take a couple of courses that lead to a specific license, you could then come back two, three, or four years later, and those credits will count if you pursue something different as long as it's part of a career pathway. And so the, develop, the, the, the development of these stackable credential programs are intended in part to help address this long-term long vision that we know jobs are going to change quickly. And so if you're in something that's changing very quickly, uh, you need some type of insurance policy to know that your investments in education are not going to be um, in vain, that there will be some type of um, institutional scaffolding to support you. Um, that is not always going to be helpful for everybody, but before this point, uh, if you had uh, an associate's degree, uh, you, can't, you can always take that with you and then transfer it and build upon that skill set. And so we are in the process, I think, of as, a, as a nation across states trying to develop this stackable credential model to help at least buffer um, what we know are changes that are going to happen. All right, we're uh, starting to get close to our ending time. We might have time for one or two more questions. Uh, I know we've got a gentleman here who's asking, been had his hand up for a while. Hi, my name's Ken, and um, I've only got half a degree because I just couldn't sit still long enough uh, to get a, a whole degree here. And I think perhaps as a result of that, um, I'm thinking about this problem more from a bottom-up approach than top-down. Um, and Vaughn, I, I loved your illustration of the linemen because I've actually been working with unions and trade groups like Electrical Training Alliance to help reinvigorate uh, their, their business development or their workforce development. And the fact is, is that in construction and field services, they're starved, absolutely starved for qualified people. And the fact is, is we're sitting on a cusp right now of a whole new paradigm of technology which allows kids to be able to actually be immersed with technology in the field and not sitting behind a computer. And the fact is, is that if you look at young people today who are in school or, or, or about to enter the workforce and you tell them they're going to go to work with a hammer and a pair of pliers, they're just not interested. It's not going to happen. And what my question is, is are you looking at ways to bring in some of this immersive technology and augmented reality to create pull from the bottom up to get young people interested in these trades and in these hands-on skills, but in a way that allows them to do this with this whole new paradigm of technology that's upon us now? We're organizing a, a field trip into uh, Silicon Valley and, and visiting with some virtual reality companies in, and seeing how we can use that technology to simulate the, the type of learning and applied experience that, that you're talking about. There's so much uh, technology that is available today that can be leveraged for training. So these are new frontiers 
for education, I, I think the, big, the biggest issue is how do you keep up with the rate of change on skills, right? It's, it's like planned obsolescence. You should plan on, the, on your skills uh, becoming obsolete. What we, what we need to have is a proactive set of institutions and infrastructure where it's intentional that, some, that people of all ages, whether you're 40, 50, 60, 30, 20, can come back, consume more training and education, come back again, but in more modularized, stackable form rather than long-term terminal degrees. It's, it's, it's having to adapt with the rate of change. There is no way around that um, in terms of being more real-time. And then the other element we're going to, it's going to face us is really thinking through competency-based education. So once you, can you master it faster without having spend, to spend the time in the seat you know, rather than clocking the time? It's like if you can get to the mastery faster, would that help us keep up the, with the labor market? And we have one last question here for the evening. Hi. Um, it seems like all three of you, or maybe even four, have mentioned uh, computer science as being something that is um, greatly in need. And I've seen recently there's been a pop-up of kind of a new paradigm of education called a boot camp. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you and um, if there's a possibility or what you think of the boot camp, and also utilizing that same paradigm within the companies um, to create basically education that can funnel directly into these companies, kind of like the um, internship, but really, really specialized uh, education. And it can be for people coming out of high school or even people changing careers in later in life. Yeah, I, I will tell you that actually even um, I think that I do think that it's necessary. I think it's a great idea, particularly for those those types of positions where there's just a, a, a clear shortage. And before I was at uh, Northrop Grumman, I was actually I actually worked for a professional services organization, uh, PwC or PricewaterhouseCoopers. And one of the things that we did, and it wasn't a consistent thing, but is is exactly that we would go and we would recruit liberal arts majors for accounting jobs. But in order to do that, you had to put them through an intensive boot camp. And there was, I saw different iterations of it. Some it was, you know, just, you know, just you go barrel down for a year and the, the firm would pay for your, for your, you know, additional education and, and that sort of a thing. And that actually worked pretty well for, to drive, to drive new people in. Um, I haven't seen, you know, Northrop Grumman hasn't had a boot camp per se. Um, but, but I will tell you one of the things that we do do, and it kind of goes back to that, to that, I think it was a, a question ago about this idea of the, the obsolete skills, right? And so it's making sure that internally our employees also, you know, there's a lot of things that we call ed assist. And so it is, uh, you know, paying for people to go back and continue their education and in whatever kind of field, generally speaking, that they're in, and that that works out really well for us as well. Um, so I, I think that it's I, th I think it's important to hit on that that boot camp idea, um, but I think it's also very important to make sure that people have the opportunity to continue to learn and develop. Um, you know, as as long as they're you know at an employer, because it behooves I will tell you it behooves the business to make sure that our people stay relevant, so that we can continue to you know, do hopefully great things for, you know, the United States and space exploration and that sort of thing that obviously we're involved in. So please join me in thanking our panel for a stimulating discussion.
This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.